Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well today. This time uh, we're going to be talking about a few different things. Uh, I released an, released a blog post on uh, the Koei games, specifically on their NES games, but I, I talked a little bit more about uh, the other stuff. So on this episode of, of the Yet to Be Named podcast, w- which is just the name now, I'm going to be talking about the uh, NES Koei games, or the Koei games on the NES. I'm also going to be talking about uh, Elise Noir's book on GoldenEye 007. This is the 29th book in the Boss Fight book series. I haven't read all of them, but I've, I've read about 21 of them so far. I think this one is, is one of the better ones. When I eventually do a top 10 on them, it'll probably be in it. Uh, right now, I think I've just done a top 5, and that will that will be out later. Uh, maybe next year. Early next year, I think. Uh, I've also been playing uh, Secret of Evermore quite a bit. I'm probably halfway through the game, if I can actually... Yeah, I think I'm about halfway through the game. I'm not sure when it'll be done, but there will eventually be a video up on that at some point. And, hey, it's it's Halloween, so, yeah, you, you're probably going to see a bunch of, uh, of horror stuff up on, on the YouTube channel. I'm not planning on doing anything uh, on for my blog or anything like that for Halloween. Um, that might change because it is still it is October fourth when uh, at the time of me recording this. So that might might change as things go on. I'm also sorry that I didn't get one out in September. Uh, I I don't know some some weird stuff happened in in. Uh, September, so I didn't have a chance to really sit down and record this. I also was kind of hoping to get some other stuff done so I could talk about some things, but yeah, I I just I just didn't uh, didn't get it done when I should have. So you'll probably see this one, and then I'll I'll do one later on in the month, like uh, near the end. And and I will <laughs> I will actually uh, keep that. I know the release dates for these have been kind of sporadic and everything. I'd, I'm not really interested in sticking to a set schedule for these, but I, I kind of want to try to get one out a month or something like that, and just talk about some of the things that I've been doing each month. So I'm sorry <laughs> that I didn't get one out in September, but I I will do I will release two this month. So let's get into the first topic. Koei is really a fascinating company. It was established in 1978, and it made a bunch of like really interesting games. At least uh, I think they're really interesting. They're also pretty weird, especially their early library, which I don't have a whole lot of experience with. But I, I do know that they're kind of strange. They released a lot of a lot of adult games. Um, which are exactly what you would expect them to be. There's a lot of like dating simulators, which are just revolving around uh, getting women to sleep with you. And yeah, they're they're kind of one of them in particular. Uh, I'm not really going to mention here. I mentioned in the the video I made for YouTube about this, but uh, one of them I I think should just be gotten rid of from the internet because I really don't think like the the topic of it is very good. And it's one of those things that you definitely shouldn't be doing. It wasn't okay to make back then, and it's definitely not okay now. 
Uh, but we'll we'll move on to to the other stuff, and because I really don't want to talk about that one. Uh, I'll briefly mention the series later on, though. Uh, when I look at Koei's library now, I see a lot of the franchises that like sparked my interest in history and storytelling. Uh, I remember finding their games in the late 90s when I was out collecting and just wanting to figure them out because I had no idea what they were. I, I also remember finding a lot of these online uh, when I was looking for ROMs in the mid to late 90s and just not knowing what they were and originally getting them confused with the, with romance, with the romancing saga or the saga games. And I would get these games, particularly Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and just be completely confused by what I'm supposed to do. And I kept wondering why I'm getting killed so quickly, because they're they're not easy games. They're they're very hard. They're kind of annoying at times, especially their strategy games. And they do not really work that well on the NES, in my opinion. They're just, they're very complicated, and if you don't have the manual, you can get really confused, frustrated, and just abandon the game very quickly. So let's kind of take a closer look at, at Koei's history here, and then we'll move on to some of the weird stuff that I found with them, and then we'll talk about the games. So like I mentioned, Koei was established in 1978, and their two founding members were Yochi and Kiro Arakawa. Uh, Yochi, Yoshi, Yochi, sorry, I, I'm no, I, I'm probably completely messing that, that name up, and I'm really sorry, but, I, it, Jap, Japanese is not one of the languages that I know, so trying to get the pronunciations right is just a nightmare for me. Anyway, he pursued a, he pursued a degree in programming, uh, while at Keio University, the company started selling PC games in the very early 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, and a lot of these were like mail order. It's the stuff that you kind of see with a lot of different game development companies from back then. It's really a fascinating period to look at because it just seemed like anybody could get games out, and it was one of those emerging markets that was just open to everybody. It wouldn't stay that way, but it, it did eventually come back to that. But those first one those first uh, set of games were just so cool because you'd go into a, a computer store and you'd just see like a bunch of sandwich bags with a floppy disk in there and like a, a handwritten manual that maybe got photocopied a few times or if they were really, you know, they had a little bit more of a budget, they would type out the manual and whatnot. So you had a bunch of really unique looking games and they were packaged really just cheaply because they the people making them didn't have the money to. I need to really uh, put into like those big boxes that you'd eventually see. So uh, the company started selling their PC games. In 1982, they released uh, their first erotic title, which was Seduction of the Condominium Wife. Or Condominium Wives, I think it was. I don't know why I wrote down singular here, but it, you're basically a guy who goes around a condominium and you're trying to sleep with a whole bunch of different people specifically women. Uh, they don't really do that. It, it wasn't an... Uh, whatever, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, these games were kind of like graphical adventures, and uh, they might have some role-playing elements to them. Uh, based on the screenshots that I've seen, uh, 
I, I didn't play any of these games, but just based on the screenshots, uh, it was pretty much what you would expect. Uh, they all, well, most of them look somewhat better than the Atari porn games that were released. But yeah, it, you're not really, you're not really getting anything crazy here. It, it's pretty simple graphics and just sort of still frames of things. You're not getting a whole lot of animation. Also in 1982, uh, Koei released the game uh, Underground Exploration. This is, as far as I can tell, and as far as much as I've been able to find out, this is the earliest known Japanese uh, RPG. At least the one, as far as I've discovered, I haven't really found anything that sort of says there was something before 1982. But, you know, there there might be something else out there, as, but so far, uh, Underground Exploration is the first one that I've, I've been able to discover. So, uh, suck it, Dragon Quest fans. In 1983, Koei released the first game in kind of like their uh, Nobunaga's Ambition series. This is one of their first strategy games that they would release, and it would be kind of joined by some other strategy games in the same style, like Romance of the Three Kingdoms, uh, Genghis Khan, Gemfire, and stuff like that. These games kind of marked the beginning of the historical simulation series. Uh, these would become kind of a staple for the company, like throughout the entire life so far. They have always released Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Nobunaga's Ambition games. They would be joined by Dynasty Warriors, uh, and <laughs> Dynasty Warriors would eventually become what it is now with the second entry. But you saw them kind of setting the stage for what they were going to be, the direction that they were going to head, head in, and the stories that they were going to tell. A lot of what Koei, now Koei Tecmo, would do is sort of repackage some of uh, some of like the Chinese, uh, the four great Chinese pieces of literature. So like they're great novels. They would take those stories and they would turn them into games. Sometimes they would just sort of regurgitate the same one, which is uh, the book Romance of the Three Kingdoms. That one they always go back to. The other ones that they visited were the Water Margin in Band of Kings of Ancient China, and they would also go to the Journey West in Sayuki, the Journey West. The other one, which is kind of escaping my my brain right now, but I think I have it written down somewhere in my notes, uh, that one they haven't really visited yet, and I'm not totally sure why at the moment. But, you know, let's just keep going, and we'll get into some of the PC games and, like, the years that those were released were released. So during the 80s, uh, Koei made a lot of games that would appear on the NES. Uh, several of them never left Japan, unfortunately. Um, it might have been due to like them having a similar game on the market, but uh, I'm just not really sure. And given some of the other games they released, I kind of find it unlikely that they didn't want to do it, do something like that. Because they had a lot of very similar games. And it just sort of seemed like they, I don't know, they picked something that they didn't think would sell and said, you know, screw it, we're not going to do that. So here's kind of a, a uh, list of what they released at the time during the 80s. Uh, Nobunaga's Ambition was released in 1983 on the PC. It would get an NES release. Um, 
Romance of the Three Kingdoms came out in 85. That would also be released. Uh, Genghis Khan in 87. Uh, Bandit Kings of Ancient China in 89. And, oh boy, this is going to be rough, but uh, <laughs> but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, Ishiran no Arashi was released in 1988. This was the only one of these five that, that were released in the 80s. Uh, this was the only one that was Japan exclusive. And I couldn't find a whole lot on it, but it was part of a series. Uh, in 1990, uh, Uncharted Waters was released on on PC, and then that would later that would later come to the NES. Uh, with that, that kind of wraps up the list of the games that they had released, at least in um, at least on PC, or the ones that I could find that were released on PC first, and then were released on the NES's ports. I'm not going to rule out the other games that I talk about being released on the PC first, or on any other computer. And when I say pers- when I say PC, I'm just very generally talking about all computers. I understand there are different variants and everything like that. I just didn't want to go through naming every single computer that these games were released on. So uh, I'm sorry if uh, if I didn't mention a specific computer there. But it, there is a chance that these games or at least the other games that I'm going to talk about, were all released on the PC, or a PC, prior to being released on the NES. I just couldn't find any evidence of it, but it's probably out there, and I just missed it. So, yeah, let's move on to the NES ports, because that's what I wanted to talk about the most, and I just wanted to build up to it a little bit. So the the reason I I really want to dig into uh, Koei is because I love their games. <laughs> I really do love all of them. Well, not all of them. I love most of them. They've released a lot of really interesting stuff. I think probably my favorite series they've done is uh, the Deception series, which I might dig into at some other point. But I really love Koei, and I wanted to kind of look at sort of how the company came about and just sort of do a deep dive into... The, all of the NES games that they had released. So most of these that I'm going to mention that were released on the NES, uh, these are going to be historical simulation games in some form. It may kind of differ on where they are, but I'll try to sort of explain a little bit of the history about what time period these things were going on about. So there isn't much action in these games. Uh, the only real exception is uh, Uncharted Waters, where you actually can do more stuff because it's more of an RPG. But here's a list of the games and kind of the genres that I think they fit into, because some of these can be a little bit hard. So Romance of the Three Kingdoms, uh, 1 and 2, they're probably strategy simulation games. Nobunaga's Ambition 1 and 2, they're also strategy simulation games. So is Genghis Khan and Bandit Kings of Ancient China. Those are all historically based games, and those were all the strategy games that they released. Uh, that well, let me back up a minute, but because I, I I missed one, sorry. And then uh, Lampor, which is another strategy simulation. Those are the ones that are all historically based. I keep forgetting about Lampor because it's a weird game, and I think it's absolute crap compared to the others but that's that's just me 
then they kind of dropped the whole strat, the whole uh, historical thing when they made Gemfire. Gemfire is the one that I would recommend if you want to get into these games. That is a high fantasy game, but it's still a strategy simulation. And it's just a lot more simplified than the other games. Some of them get stupidly complex and really into the weeds, which I thought was a bit ridiculous that they put it out on the NES, but I'll talk more about those in a little bit. Gemfire is is definitely the one that I would recommend starting with. And then there's Uncharted Waters, and that is also historically based, but it's more of an RPG than the other games. I'll talk more about it later, but it kind of reminds me of Pirates, which was a Sid Meier release. And yeah, it's... Yeah, it's the one that I think translates the best to the NES just because it's not a, a strategy game. I, I don't think most of their strategy games really work that well on the NES just because you just because you need a mouse for them. At least I keep wanting to have a mouse for them. They do function. Like, they're all... all you can play any of these games, but... I feel like, you know, just the PC is a better fit for a turn-based strategy game like those. And most of those games fit into that. Uh, Again, Uncharted Waters is the one that I think plays the best, just because you don't necessarily need the manual in order to play that one. And for somebody like me who collects a lot of their cartridges loose and doesn't care about getting them sealed in box or anything like that, you really need the manual to play some of these games so picking these up without the manual or finding a ROM online and not having the manual with you it can be a real pain in the ass thankfully the internet's there to fill in some of the gaps but just imagine back in the in the late 90s buying one of these and just being confused as to what you're supposed to do and then getting into a crappy situation in the game and two turns into it you're dead and you have to start all over Ah uh, man, yeah, a lot of a lot of very interesting, interesting memories of playing this game, or, or playing all of these games, particularly Nobunaga's Ambition, because that was, oddly enough, that was the first SNES game that I owned. But I'll get more into that stuff later. I kind of went a little bit of a, a little bit out of order here. Um, so those were the games that were released uh, before I kind of want to get into that. Uh, let's talk about the Strawberry Porno series. Those were the erotic games that Koei released. And, yeah, just imagine the fun I had looking up information on the Strawberry Porno series of games and typing that into a search engine and just going, yeah, that's kind of what I expected to get when I typed something like this in. And then going and clearing my browser history immediately. And even looking up some of the the games on here, I was like, yeah, that doesn't work out. <laughs> none of that really, uh, none of that's going to help. But yeah, I, I wanted to kind of single these games out and just go over them very briefly. Because uh, this is a series of four games that Koei made and then tried really hard to forget about. Uh, they were left off the company's history when when it published it on its website. Uh, and you can imagine... Like I mentioned, these these are these these are all adult video games, uh, like the adult only video games. Uh, I, I you know I, I mentioned them earlier, but let's just 
I did do a little bit more research than what I really wanted to on them. Uh, Nightlife, My Lolita. Uh, let's just cut those out. So Nightlife, uh, Do Dutch Wives, His Dream of Electric Eels, uh, Seduction of the Condominium Wives. I knew I, I knew I wrote it down wrong the first time. But yeah, the, these games are exactly what you'd expect from them. Uh, so yeah, they're... <sighs> They're really stupid, and at least one of them, I hope to God it's just completely er eradicated from the frickin' internet because it's awful. And I can completely understand why Koei wanted to forget about them, but they are a somewhat important footnote in their history. So let's let's just go into the NES games, and you know we'll forget about that stuff for now. If you would like a more detailed explanation of those games... Uh, I'm not really interested in going into them, but you know, if if you guys really want it, I can talk a little bit more about those in a, in a future episode. And I'm just kind of hoping that you don't want to hear about them anymore. Finding that's one of the interesting things of having a script is I kind of forget what what was in here. So let's uh, let's move on to Romance of the Three Kingdoms here. So I combined one and two in the same kind of article because they're essentially the the same game with very few kind of twerks to, or tweaks to it. I don't know where my brain is at right now. Anyway, these two ga- these two games are, I remember the most when I was seeing uh, just a whole bunch of NES ROMs when I was in high school. I didn't know anything about these games, and I was a little confused playing them because I had never played a strategy game like this before, where it's mostly... It's mostly like a text-based strategy game, or kind of like... So it's like a graphical adventure type thing, where the adventure games were originally all text-based. You can see this game was probably all text-based, and then they just sort of put some visuals over it to kind of make the game look a little bit better. At least that's the best way I can kind kind of explain it. And like I mentioned, I thought these were RPGs at the very beginning. And it turns out that, no, they, they were not. Uh, I didn't think to like look up how to play these games when I first got them. I just sort of tried to figure them out on my own, which is something that's sort of, sort of forgotten these days because someone out there on the internet has gone to all the trouble to put these things together for you, like all the guides and all the strategies and everything like that. So you might as well use them now. Uh, back in the 90s, I didn't know a whole lot about the internet. I was barely on it, to be honest with you. I was not looking around for a whole lot of things. So I did not really look for the manuals on these. Over the years, though, the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games would kind of become more accessible to new players. Personally, I think the seventh game is probably the best. At least that's my opinion. The first two are, are kind of fine. Uh, they're like the other ones. You choose a scenario and you choose a different lord to play as. And your goal is to take over China. Or the or the provinces that are representing China at that particular point in time. It isn't an easy game at all. And there are just many different things that can go horribly wrong for you while you're playing it. If you don't do things like perfectly you can end up losing in the first turn, or even like the first or second turn. 
and then you have to just start all over, or you just turn the game off, set it over in a nice corner where no one will ever see it again, and move on with your life. Like I'm sure many people did. But yeah, there's a lot of weirdness to this game. Uh, You have to recruit other generals to kind of join your side, and you need to do your best to train up your army while keeping everybody happy, like your population happy. And it can be very annoying to do so. Which is why I like the seventh game so much, because they just sort of threw all that out and said, if you just want to be a lord, like a basically a vassal to another lord, you can do that. You can be just a rogue general and get recruited into one of the different factions and play that way. You don't have to be a lord and try to take over the take over all of China. It worked so much better like that, where you could just sit back and kind of watch the scenario unfold and watch how history goes weird and changes things. And it was a lot more fun that way. But playing as like one of the lesser known lords, that makes the game just insanely hard for you. If you don't play as someone like Cao Cao or Liu Bei or Sun, uh, Sun Jian, I think is the one at the very beginning, uh, it can get really, really hard. You kind of want to pick the person who is in the best position for any one of the particular scenarios you choose. Even that, oh my god, it, it can get just really, really complicated. This was not a game that you wanted to get if you were just like a kid in the late 90s, or sorry, late 80s. So if you were like 6 or 7, like I was, uh, you were you did not want to get this game. Like This was not going to be something that you got and had any freaking enjoyment with. It was just going to be really frustrating and you were going to just decide to put the controller down, turn off the NES and head outside and find a stick to just use your imagination with instead of dealing with this stupid game. Even though I really love it, it can be punishingly hard to play. And I really love Romance of the Three Kingdoms, but going back and playing these first two, I was like, oh my god, these are just absolutely brutal. But they they aren't as hard as some of the games in this, in this uh, whole historical simulation series. Uh, Nobunaga's Ambition 1 and 2 on the NES, those are a little bit harder than uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, but they kind of tease you a little bit, and they let you kind of kind of think that you're doing well until just the world comes crashing down on you. Especially with the battle scenes where... How can I best put this? Uh, the leader of your, of your faction is leading an army in that, And if that army gets defeated, then that lord dies, and then you lose the game. And I didn't remember that, or if I did know it to begin with, I had completely forgotten about. So when I played this, the well, when I played, I think, one the first time, completely forgot all about that, ended up dying right off the bat, and was just kind of like, oh, no, these are all the emotions that I had back when I was a kid, and it's all coming back to me. I say when I was a kid, I think I was probably 17, 17 or 18 when I played Nobunaga's Ambition. But going back and playing these for the NES, I was just like, oh my god, these are incredibly hard. And just, oh man, just very, very punishing. 
you're doing the same thing in Nobunaga's ambition that you were doing in uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And Nobunaga's ambition is probably the second... Well, it's actually the longest running, but it has it doesn't have as many entries as Romance of the Three Kingdoms. At least as far as I can tell. But this one takes place in Japan, and it's the setting that they would return to the most because the, you had Nobunaga's ambition, and Koei made that series just super complicated because they didn't number them all. So you have stuff like like a Iron Triangle is one of the Nobunaga's, Nobunaga's ambition games. Jesus. That's getting really hard for me to say, but yeah, whatever. So, yeah, they just made it really hard if you want to collect these. And then they went ahead and released uh, Kassen 1, 2, and 3, where they go back and forth, where they start out in feudal Japan, then they go to China with Romance of the Three Kingdoms 1 for Kassen 2, then they come back for, into uh, Japan for Kassen 3, if I'm remembering that series correctly. And then they would go to... Um, then there was another spinoff of uh, Nobunaga's Ambition with uh, the RPG Inadu. And that one was just... Yeah, but I'm getting kind of sidetracked. Let's just... Let's get back to the NES games, because I feel like I'm kind of rambling at this point. Uh, but yes, the two series play very similar to each other. I I think they were probably created using the same engine, which you could most likely say for all of their historical simulation games. Uh, but I think, looking back at it now, I think uh, Nomonaga's ambition is probably more challenging of the two. It It is possible to win, but it's very tough to do so. I... As I think more about it, I think the two are, are fairly close to each other. I, but I think I think Nobunaga's ambition is a little bit harder. I wouldn't start with either of those series if you want to get into these, but it it was it was probably the more challenging. These are both turn-based strategy games. Uh, you have a whole bunch of tasks that you have to do. And if you don't know what to do for either of these, just train your troops. It won't always work in your favor, but it's a good idea, and it's usually what you should do by default. You can never go wrong by fixing your army in these games. Sometimes it won't matter if it's the right decision or not, but those are usually the things that you want to do. When you find yourself in battle, there are a few things that you can do in both of these games. Uh, you can try to defeat the enemy army, you can just sort of maneuver around and outlast them. Or you can try to like cut off their supplies and just deplete their morale so they'll have to leave. Sometimes I found it was best to just avoid the enemies until their supplies run out and do your best to protect your, your castle so they don't get to it. Uh, as you take over more regions in both of these games, you can assign warlords to kind of administer them because it gets there's a lot of different regions you can take over. I think there's about 50 or so. And it just becomes unmanageable for one person. You know, as you take over these things, it's you need to try to keep them happy, and it, it's it's very very complicated. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it, and at least for me, I never got far enough in these first two uh, entries for both series. But yeah, it, it can get really 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 confusing and really hard. But they they're not as hard as 
as the next one. Uh, so Genghis Khan was another one that they released in this same same idea. It just follows the life of Genghis Khan, and you're going to be doing a lot of the same things that you were doing in both Nobunaga's Ambition and Romance of the Three Kingdoms. The only problem is uh, Genghis Khan is way more confusing than those two series. It is possible to do everything right. Uh, it's just way too complicated for somebody new to these games. I've been playing them for years, and I was kind of struggling to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. Like, this is one that you really do need the manual, like, not just pulling up on a computer screen, but I feel like you need the damn thing right in front of you so you can figure out what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to play just this absolute monstrosity of a game. If you can't tell, uh, Genghis Khan is the series that I hate out of, the, out of those three original ones. Uh, yeah, I, I really don't have anything else to talk about it, but I just, I really do not like that that game at all. Uh, then we come to Bandit Kings of Ancient China. This one is kind of cool. Like, it's a bit of a weird game, but it's just a little bit more, uh, it's a little bit more interesting for the of, out of the uh, historical simulation games. Uh, it's a weird game. It's based on the Water Margin novel, where ten heroes work together to overthrow the Emperor's War Minister, and I find the book to be a bit more interesting than the game, if you can't tell. There's a lot more going on in the book, and I think it's just much better than the game. And yeah, they 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 kind of did some weird stuff with it. So the game has you kind of racing against a clock. You have to defeat the war minister before like a, a foreign army invades and takes over the country. So you need to have a like a sufficiently popular you have to be like sufficiently popular with the people and have gained the emperor's attention and then receive an edict from the emperor before you can try to arrest uh, Gao Kui, which I'm sure I butchered that poor man's name. Uh, but he's the villain of the story, so fuck him. And you need to do all that before you can can arrest him. And it's it's way more intricate, and there's more stuff going on there that I find very interesting. You've got 49 regions that you have to capture. I don't think that you need all of them to beat the game. At least I've never gotten to that point. Uh, but I'm guessing you need to at least be allied with the lords that rule them in order to you know, actually win. I haven't tried every possible scenario for gaining popularity in this. I just wanted to try to do my best in order to you know, experience as much of the game as I could, and I, I think I did. Uh, for some reason, I, I'm not really sure why, but the, the localization team that translated this decided to do literal translations of the names. And I, I had never seen this done before. Usually they just, like, romanize the, the, uh, th they just romanize, like, the Japanese script into, like, what it would sound like or how you might pronounce it in English. Sometimes they don't do it right, but at least that kind of gives you an idea of what you're supposed to do. But the way they did it here is they did, like, literal translations of the names. 
So you come across like characters that are named Nine Dragons, Tattooed Priest, and Heavenly King, and I have absolutely no fucking idea why they thought that was a good idea when they didn't do that for any other freaking game that Koei released. So you just have this thing where you have a bunch of people who have bizarre names that don't really make a whole lot of sense when you translate them into English, and yeah, you you're just looking at the screen almost baffled because you're like, why did they give all these people such goofy names? Because they sound goofy when you say that in English. If you walk up to somebody and say, hi, my name's Tattooed Priest, they're going to look at you weird because that's a weird name to give somebody. Why don't they just, you know, I don't know. It, it goes back to just bad translations and video games and everything where... It just wasn't really thought of as a, a thing back in the 90s. They just found somebody who sort of knew English, and they were like, hey, uh, translate this for us, and just do the best you can. Those, those five- and six-year-olds aren't going to know. But looking back at them now, it's, they make for some pretty interesting memes, and it's sort of fun to look at some of these things and wonder, you know, why did they do it the way they did? And then if you are interested in finding out why, it's kind of an interesting story. But most people are just interested in laughing at them. I did not really feel like laughing at them, and I didn't really feel like doing the research. I just find it very weird that they went with these literal translations. I think I've probably spent too much time on that right now. So we can kind of move on to some other stuff. Thankfully, the manuals for these are up on the internet. Otherwise, you know... Bandit Kings of Ancient China would be kind of hard to play. But I think it stands out from the bunch just because it's got kind of a unique concept and it's sort of a cool idea to just play around with and try to figure out how you're going to gain popularity and capture this guy. It's a really cool story and I'm glad that they did it. Now we get to the weird one. <laughs> and that is uh, Lampor. Have you ever wanted to, to help Napoleon take over Europe? Well, that's what you do in this game. You you play as Napoleon, and you kind of follow his, his rise, and then you don't pay any attention to his fall. So, yeah, that's kind of fun, isn't it? There are four scenarios for you to choose from. However, it ends after he becomes kind of the Emperor of France, and it plays like the other Koei historical simulation games. This is one of the games that I didn't know about uh, out of the out of the whole bunch. I do own all of the Koei NES games. This is one that I, I'm i pretty sure I might have seen it in, like, Funko Land's pricing guide. They used to put out, like, these newspaper-type things, and they had every NES game in it. At least, I think they had every NES game in it, including some of, like, the unlicensed games. So it was kind of cool to read through that and see what the different prices were and everything and learn about a lot of the games that you did not know about back then. Because there were quite a few games that just you d you wouldn't have known about and you didn't know about. And, yeah, you, you get that list and you're sort of like, oh, cool, I, I wonder what this game is. I wonder what this game is about. And uh, Le Empore was one of those. Um... I never knew anything about the game. Like, I didn't even know what it was about because I, I just saw the name and I was like, that's weird. 
And then it wasn't until, like, uh, I was looking up stuff on the internet and I found more about it. And I was like, oh, okay, it's it's about the French Revolution and Napoleon and, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fair enough. And it was one of those things where Koei would uh, release a lot of games that were sort of like this. They usually stuck to, like, China and Japan, but they would end up doing a whole bunch of other things, like... Um, you have Liberty or Death, and then you have the uh, Pacific Theater of Operations. And those were the same thing as uh, their other strategy games as well, but they just were set in kind of different places and different times. They never followed up on uh, Lampor, and I, I honestly don't blame them because it's kind of a weird it's kind of a weird idea to do. And it works pretty well for just what they were doing. But as, like, a kid, I didn't know anything about the French Revolution, aside from the fact that it happened. And if you play this, you're, you're not going to learn anything new about it. And I can't imagine any kid would be, like, in the store and see this and be like, oh, I want the weird game that I can't pronounce. It, it just seems like a real oddity to this and but it did kind of um it did kind of make me think about other stuff that koei had released and then i i went in to look at more games for from koei's library so at least it did that and i wanted to look at some of their kind of like western games that they had or games that they released from like a western historical perspective so it was kind of cool to see this and it was kind of cool to to play it but yeah, I don't I don't think I would ever go back to something like this because it's just not all that memorable and it's just sort of a repeat of other games that I would rather be playing. It's not a bad game at all. However, I would still want to play Gemfire over this or play Romance of the Three Kingdoms or Nobunaga's Ambition. It It's just one of those weird games that gets put out there and you just don't really know why <laughs> but yeah it, whatever so I think I've talked enough about Gemfire that I might as well bring it up here <laughs> uh, this one is probably my favorite of the NES strategy games and it, it you know it, it is my favorite out of all the Koei games that are released on the NES just because it's uh, it's got a cool setting, it's got a cool story, I think they did more with it, and they kind of fleshed out what was going on better than the others. As I mentioned, uh, Gemfire is a high fantasy strategy game, and it's a bit more simplistic than the other Koei strategy games at this time. Uh, it was also just had a better combat system. It reminds me a little bit of uh, Heroes of Might and Magic or King's Bounty. Uh, this is one of those games that I wish Koei had done more with. Uh, there is a Japan-only sequel to it, which was uh, released as Royal Blood 2. Uh, Royal Blood was the original title for this game, but I'm just going to keep calling it Gemfire because that is the way that I know it. Uh, this one is just a lot more interesting, and it's a lot easier to play than, than the other ones. Uh, each side, when you get into the combat phase, uh, each side has five units. You have cavalry, archers, you have knights with shields, and then a unit of knights without shields. And I have no idea why, and I don't know which one is stronger, and it doesn't really seem to matter that much. 
and then you also have like a fifth unit that can be pretty much anything. Uh, usually I would have kind of the sorcerer that you pick at the beginning as, as my fifth unit, but you can also like hire uh, different monsters. So you can have like a group of fairies, group of goblins, a group of orcs, you can have a dragon, you can have a, a bunch of weird shit being your fifth unit. Uh, like I said, I'm not really sure what the difference between the two knights is, but visually you can see that there is one. So you use the, you move these five units around a little battle screen once you get to one, and their strength depends on how many soldiers you sent into battle. So if you sent 100 soldiers into battle, you'll have 25 in the cavalry, 25 archers, 25 knights with shields, 25 knights without shields. And it's just kind of fun to see those like broken up that way because it really does give you like that visual impression, that, that visual uh, thing of just how many soldiers you have and what their specialty is. Uh, yeah, the, this is uh, the one that I would recommend. So I, I think if you want to really get into sort of the retro Koei games and you want to see what their what their strategy games are like, then Gemfire will definitely do that for you. And it'll be a lot easier to kind of navigate through all the menus and all the bullshit and everything like that. This is my favorite out of all of them, and it's the one that I would recommend you start with if you want to get into them. There is also a Genesis, uh, Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive and a Super Nintendo game. They're all the same. Like, they they really are all the same, just graphical upgrades. So you can start with any one of those three, whichever one is cheaper, or whichever one you can find on, on an emulator or something like that. All of them are really fun, and you're basically playing the same game no matter what version you get. I kind of forgot about uh, Uncharted Waters. Uh, sorry about that. This is the RPG that they released, that Koei released. And it takes place in the Age of Exploration, so about 14-1500s. And the one on the NES is not that great. It's not the version of the game that I would recommend you start with. Simply because it takes away a lot of the fun from uh, Uncharted Waters New Horizons, which was the second game released of this kind of mini-series. And that's the one that I would recommend you start with if you want to play these games. It was released on the Super Nintendo, and it's really good. You have a lot more options of what you can do. In the NES version, you're locked into one path. You have to play as this specific character. You have to kind of do whatever his missions are and to try to like restore the honor of his family. However, with New Horizons... Uh, with Uncharted Waters New Horizons, you have the option to play one of several characters, and you have a lot more freedom on how you want to actually play. Also, because it's the Super Nintendo, the graphics are going to be better, and you don't have to do the really annoying thing where you move to the bottom of the screen, and then you just jump to the next screen. It feels a little bit like they took that from The Legend of Zelda, at least in the NES version, and it just plays like crap. At least I think it plays like crap. With the Super Nintendo versions, you have the entire map of the world, and you just sail around. 
and that one is just a lot better and it's just a lot more fun what is notable about uncharted waters is it kind of feels like an open world game or at least as close to an open world game as the nes could do and it is fun to play but you're just sort of limited in what you can and can't do in the game it's a lot like pirates or sid meyer's pirates where you're just sort of dropped off into a world and you're told to do stuff. Like, you have an end goal, like a story mode that you can follow. But the way you get to that end point is completely up to you. Almost like you're playing a choose-your-own-adventure book, but with much less dying. It's just a lot of fun to go through and play. And, yeah, it, it can be a lot of fun for Uncharted Waters... But I would rather, like, if you're just looking at the NES, I would recommend playing Sid Meier's Pirates over Uncharted Waters because that game, I think, is more polished and just looks a lot better. If you want to play one of the Uncharted Waters games, I would go to Uncharted Waters New Horizons because you can choose from, like, a group of different characters and you can do a lot more stuff. Like, if you just want to spend the entire game being a traitor, you can do that. You don't actually have to care about the story, or you can complete the story at your own leisure. That's something you can do in the NES version, but I think you'll have more fun doing it in the Super Nintendo version, which is kind of a shame because I, I think the NES version could be good, but there are just some graphical issues and everything that I don't, really like with it that would kind of keep me from saying yeah play this one it's yeah I, I don't know it's it's a very interesting game that I might kind of dig more into later but looking at it now I, I don't think it's one that I could recommend at the moment so uh, those are those are all the games on the NES uh, they do have more on the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis but that's kind of where this little journey ends. Um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the novels behind the games. Uh, I really love books, uh, almost as much as I love video games, and especially books about history. And yeah, yeah, I know I'm kind of the strange person who loves reading about history and loves sharing weird facts about history with people, and. Uh, Many of the games that Koei made are kind of historical-based or based on historical accounts and historical novels. Uh, there is a difference between the two, but we're not going to get into that. Uh, yeah, it's it's weird. But uh, Koei likes to make games that are kind of inspired by, by literature. They really do pull from like the classic Chinese novels and whatnot. And many of their games are, are based on those. Specifically, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, uh, Journey to the West, and The Water Margin. Those are the three books that they have specifically pulled from. I might be missing some of the other ones, but as far as I can tell, those are the three that they've kind of directly taken taken the plots of and turned them into games. Uh, Koei took Romance of the Three Kingdoms and The Water Margin for their NES games. And these were kind of loosely adapted into Romance of the Three Kingdoms 1 and 2, and then Bandit Kings of Ancient China. 
they took the journey west and they kind of turned that into a tactical RPG and sort of leaned in more on like the the fantastical parts of that or they took a version that was a little bit more fantasy based and sort of turned that into the tactical RPG Sayuki the Journey West on the PS1 uh, Romance of the kind of give you kind of a plot synopsis of them. Uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms follows the civil war that took place during the end of the Han Dynasty. And it's a really fascinating book to read with a ton of characters in it. There is so much shit going on in that book that it's hard to really keep track of. And you find all of the characters that are put into like the Dynasty Warriors and the Romance of the Three Kingdoms games you find those in the book, uh, Romance of the Three Kingdoms. And it's really crazy. I I really love the book. Uh, I love the games more, but the games are what got me into reading that book. Uh, The Water Margin takes place during the Song Dynasty in China, and it sees a group of bandits taking on a corrupt government official. Uh, I'm more familiar with Romance of the Three Kingdoms than The Water Margin. I haven't read that one yet. Uh, it's I haven't read that one yet, so I don't really want to speak too much on it, so I'm not going to go too deep into the plot. But it's from the summaries that I've read, it sounds pretty cool. Uh, the Journey West is one that I feel like I have read it. It's, I haven't, but it's one of those stories that like you feel that you've read it because there's a lot of stuff in there that you've seen before, like in different animes, different mangas, and also in uh, if you played the game on the PS1, you kind of have an idea of what happened in the book. So I haven't read it, but I sort of feel like I have. It's like when you see a whole bunch of clips to a movie and you kind of feel like you've seen the movie. Okay, so let's let's wrap this up really quick. So I, looking at my time here, I have gone on for a very long time about this. So uh, these these are just some of the Koei games, and honestly, the Koei games are some of the stranger ones on the NES. Uh, they aren't the weirdest by any stretch of the means, but they are pretty different than most of the NES library. You know, just looking at the different licensed games, you didn't see a lot of strategy games on there, but you would have some that were a bit more simplistic than these were. These were very advanced games and required you to know an awful lot and to read an awful lot in order to really get into them. Uh, yeah, they they did do some very interesting stuff. I think Uncharted Waters is one of the standouts for like the early RPGs on the NES. I do want to dig more into that game at some point, but I just I got turned off by just playing it and saying, well, I would rather be playing the, the sequel in this game. It was just one of those things where I looked at it and I go, I kind of I kind of want to get into it, but it just it doesn't really feel as good as as the second one. And you know, kind of the more that I, I look at the NES library. I honestly find more RPGs than what I thought. And Uncharted Waters is one that I'll probably look at at some later later time. Overall, I think some of the Koei games didn't make that much sense to be on console, especially their historical simulation games. Those just probably those probably would have been better suited to be on like a computer 
where you could have a mouse and you could the the target audience was going to be older and you could take more time to kind of sit back and think about different things especially you know just looking at my own experience at the NES I was six well five or six when we got our NES and if I got something like Romance of the Three Kingdoms for my birthday or if we had rented it I would have been really freaking disappointed uh, yeah, it, I just think they're a little bit too complex for the target audience of the NES and everything like that. Uh, definitely, if you want to play some of these now, the two that I would recommend are probably Gemfire and Uncharted Waters. They're the two that I think really stand out. They're the ones that are probably the most accessible, especially Gemfire. And, you know, I just think they're the best out of the bunch, at least in my opinion. Koei has just a very long history in video games, and I'm kind of looking forward to examining some other parts or to go into some other stuff that other companies that I really enjoy have released or digging into some of these franchises. Anyway, let's uh, let's leave Koei in the dust for a bit, and I'll go over a, a couple of the other things I wanted to talk about. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about GoldenEye here. <laughs> So, Boss Fight Books uh, released a book called uh, GoldenEye 007. If you don't know anything about uh, Boss Fight Books, they release these really well-done books about uh, just different video games, people's experiences with video games, and maybe like a history of the game's development. Well, with uh, GoldenEye 007, uh, Elise Noir, I think I'm pronouncing her name right, she is the one who, she's the author of this book. And she wrote just a very, very fascinating book that tells the story of GoldenEye. It tells you a bit of the history of Rare, the developer for GoldenEye. And it kind of tells you about how the game was made and everything. And it's just very fascinating. She mixes in a lot of her own personal memories with it, as well as just other stuff. And I think she does a, a very good job of putting GoldenEye uh, GoldenEye into its proper place in video game history. Because it, it is a, a fairly significant game for like first-person shooters on home console. When you compare it to first-person shooters on the PC, yeah, it kind of falls apart. But at the time, in 1997, 1998, it was really, really good. And it's one of the first like licensed games that really stood out and showed, hey, a, a movie-based game can be good if it's done right and if it's given the, the proper you know time and the proper focus. And this one was very good. I think she does an excellent job of just weaving her experiences and the experiences of other people into the story of how this game was made. And a little bit of how um, how Rare fell apart after Microsoft got them. She doesn't go too deep into that, which I completely understand because it's not the focus of the book. But it is kind of interesting to to read a little bit about that. So one of the uh, one of the more interesting things in this book was her explaining, you know, how Rare changed over the years. Uh, like many stories that I've read of British developers, they started out programming for the ZX Spectrum. And if that's going to annoy anyone, and just hopefully this will annoy someone, the ZX Spectrum. 
that version of Rare disappeared after the Stamper Brothers kind of sold that company off, and then they created Rare. And during the late 80s and everything, they started to make games for the NES. They worked with a, with a bunch of different publishers, and they created games of various quality and everything like that. It's kind of interesting to hear, or not really hear, but read some of the things in here. It's like, oh, Rare stands for quality. And then you play some of their NES games, and you're like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> you definitely don't stand for quality. Some of these are crap. But they're at least playable crap, which is somewhat, you know, admirable at the time because there there are some NES games that are just like broken beyond repair. And that's not something you could say about, you know, all of Rare's titles. They made some stuff that was just awful. But that I'm not gonna get into that. Once they once they kind of cozied up more to Nintendo and they, you know, Nintendo invested in them and, you know, trusted them with, like, the Donkey Kong IP, that's when you saw Rare, like, really shine. Because they made a bunch of these really great games, like the three Donkey Kong Country games. And they started doing stuff that was really different. And they kind of focused what they were doing and really made some great games. And then you come to the N64 where... They at this point they were a second party developer because Nintendo owned a share of them, so they were going to be making games for Nintendo. And Rare made like arguably some of the best games on the N64. Well, it's not really arguably. They made some of the best games in the on the N64, especially with you know. And granted, I, I know. Granted, they did not have a whole lot of competition for the for making great games with the N, on the N64 because the library is kind of small, and it's filled with a lot of shovelware. To be nice, it's filled with a lot of shovelware. There's a lot of racing games, a lot of sports games on there, and then it's really you know Nintendo and Rare. They were kind of the people who stole the show and everything like that. But Rare was offered the GoldenEye contract, so it's saying, hey, do you want to make a game for GoldenEye? It's licensed property. They originally turned it down, but then eventually took it on. And they had a very broad license to choose, like to work with. So they could take stuff not just from the GoldenEye movie, but they could take stuff from the entire Bond franchise if they wanted to. And that helped them out a lot with uh, the multiplayer and everything like that. This game would go on to make just a whole bunch of money for Rare. And that is when kind of the attitudes started to shift in Rare. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But you kind of hear more about money at that point and uh, compensation for the developer's work and that sort of thing. And this was kind of like a repeat of every video game story that I've read about any developer. Just pick one. And it seems like they had an instance where they made an awful lot of money, didn't want to pay their developers the same that... Well, they didn't want to pay their developers what they were owed. And then the studio kind of started going to shit. And to be fair, Rare didn't completely go to shit, but there's a noticeable dip in quality from the games they made on the N64 to the games that they would be making for Microsoft. And that's because Microsoft did not have the same attitude as Nintendo did 
when they bought the company, they were not really trusting of Rare. They didn't see Rare as being something that they really could kind of invest in and trust, which sort of raised the question of why did they buy them to begin with. But yeah, I, I don't know. Like I understood there was a lot more to this story that Elise had, but at least from the reading of this, I should back up. From reading this, it felt like there was more to the story, and Elise kind of didn't want to go too deep into it because that would have been kind of out of the out of the scope of uh, of her talking about Goldeneye and the people that made Goldeneye. I talked about her putting Goldeneye into its proper place in video game history, and I I think she does a a very good job of doing this, because Goldeneye sits just at a very interesting time. Uh, The way the game was made, there was a lot more freedom with the development team. Uh, The state of the N64 at the time had a, a pretty big role in it, and yeah, she just does an excellent job of sort of explaining the role that Goldeneye played for F- for uh, first-person shooters on a console and showing, hey, these can work on a home console. This is how you do it. This is how you set things up. And you'll see a lot of the things that were in Goldeneye would end up being staples of, uh, of future FPS on, on console and whatnot. And I, when I was reading this, I started thinking back to the other first-person shooters that were on home console, and a lot of them were just sort of bad PC ports or bad-to-butchered PC ports of, of better PC games. And the only one that I could really think of off of the top of my head that was made for a home console was Disruptor. Uh, that's on the PS1, but it was originally made for like the 3DO, or at least it was started for the 3DO and then was later made for um, made for the PS1. Uh, it's an interesting game, but it's basically a Doom clone, and that's not a knock against it. There were a lot of Doom clones out there. It's just one of the better ones. At the time, consoles just weren't the place that you would find games like GoldenEye. Uh, they looked like first-person shooters looked better on the PC, and they played an awful lot better on the PC than they did on console. GoldenEye was different, though. It uh, it was one of those games that just showed, hey, this you can do this, and here's how it would work. And as, as much crap as the N64 controller gets, some of it deserved, most of it undeserved, it did bring one thing that was going to help out a lot, and that was having an analog stick. That helped games like this out immensely with just you know moving around and changing your aim and that sort of thing. Uh, Elise uses a few quotes in here from John Romero that I think were very well used. He's one of the creators of Doom, and it really helps to kind of hammer her points home. Uh, John gives the game a ton of praise, and he points out some of the stuff that I said where you would see things in GoldenEye that would get repeated in later FPS, like really diving into like an actual story mode and a single-player mode, but comparing that with just excellent multiplayer gameplay. And that's kind of what I remember the most about GoldenEye is its multiplayer. That kind of kind of brings us to how the game was made. And this is sort of brought up in in retrospect. Uh, The team didn't really 
have like a lot of project management going on. And while they wanted to really like push the boundaries of what the the N64 could do, they spent much of their time like iterating their design. Uh, many technology projects do this. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, if the project you're working on has the time to do this, it can be really effective because you hammer out a lot of the design issues. And you're going to find like a lot of video games do this because you might have a gameplay element that you're working on and it just doesn't work out right away, so you need to tweak it over and over again. Uh, in this case, it resulted in an excellent FPS and arguably one of the best console FPS. Uh, much of what you would expect from modern FPSs came from GoldenEye. I've probably mentioned that too many times, but it's, it's true. Uh, if they weren't given the freedom to do this, and, you know, really the time to do it, they would not have had, like, this version of GoldenEye that we have now. It would have ended up being rushed, the game would not have been as good, and it might have looked like the original version, which was going to be a rail shooter, which I think still could have worked, but it would have been really different, and probably not been as good, because you would not have had multiplayer. At some point, I think Nintendo even told them, don't put multiplayer in the game. And the team just went ahead and did it anyway. Showed them kind of like a proof of concept, and they said, okay, I'll go ahead and do it. It's very interesting to, to go back and, and look at all this stuff. Especially how, as much as you can say about, um, about Rare's management after GoldenEye, basically after the money came in, at the time, they were very protective of these people. Like, Nintendo had stopped funding the project at one point, and they just said, they didn't even tell them. Like, they were probably getting a lot of pressure to get this game out, and Rare's upper management just never let any of that filter down to the GoldenEye team. So they were given a lot of leeway to go out there and make the best game that they could, and I think they did even though a lot of the quotes in here talk about, oh, well, this we didn't do this very well, we didn't do this right, this could have been done better and everything like that. We had to cut these things. The, this is a bunch of other stuff that we wanted to put in here. All that's in this book, and I still think it came away looking really, really good. It just sort of reminded me of, of a lot of the stories I've read about indie game development and games made back in the 80s where they could just go ahead and do whatever they wanted. They had a lot of time, and the only limits on them is really money and everything like that. And with Rare, they didn't have to worry about the money. They could just keep going, and everything was going to work out. At least the team didn't have to worry about money. I'm sure the, the company was getting a, a little worried. They did have to cut a few corners because of budget, but... It didn't really feel that way, at least when I, I went back and played it, uh, well, after I was reading this book, I, I did not think that they suffered from anything like that. I think they made the best game that they could, and it's a really fun game. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about that once I get to the memories section and just how my own opinion has changed on GoldenEye over the years. Uh but let's talk a little bit about the inspiration behind GoldenEye because that was kind of kind of fun to read about, and some of it wasn't that surprising. But uh, one one thing really was surprising. 
and I mentioned this earlier, GoldenEye was going to be a rail shooter at first. Uh, this is a genre of arcade game where the player is just sort of ushered through the game. You kind of move through like a roller coaster, and then you come to a stop. Some enemies will pop up on the screen. You shoot them with your light gun. Once those enemies are gone, you move on to the next part, assuming that you didn't die. And it's a, it's a version of an arcade game that I really love. Like the the game I most associate with this kind of with this genre is House of the Dead. However, the rail uh, the rail the rare team uh, took a lot of inspiration from Virtual Cop at first. Both of them are a lot of fun. Uh, both of them are usually played with a light gun that would not have really worked that well with an N64 controller, at least in my opinion. It's not a whole lot of fun to move a cursor around on a screen, even with an analog stick. That's just my opinion. You can disagree with me on that. Fair enough. I don't really care. I think a light gun works better for a rail shooter than, than an actual controller. Uh, but yeah, then uh, id Software is brought up. Gosh, sorry. Lost my train of th- thought there for a second. But then uh, id Software is brought up, and that's just kind of like a no-brainer. You just assumed that they took inspiration from Doom, because every first-person shooter took inspiration from Doom in the 90s. At least it seems that way. And I remember when I first looked at it, I was like, oh, it's a Doom clone. I don't, I don't really care about this. It's, it's just Doom. And that was something that you could say about a lot of first-person shooters, but GoldenEye was so much more than, than a Doom clone. While it did use a first-person perspective, you were carrying around just a, an, un, um, an unreasonable number of weapons. And, yeah, you, you could kind of do anything. It required you to be more stealthy in some missions. Like, going in guns blazing wasn't always the right answer. Uh, you had to do a lot of other things. You had to do escort missions. There's an actual story to the game that's, you know, an actual a good story, like an in-depth one, not a, a Doom story where it's just, you know, hey, here's uh, six paragraphs of the... F- of justification as to why hell is invading whatever uh go out there and shoot aliens you can just or sorry go out there and shoot uh, zombies and demons you don't really need to care about the story just those guys are bad you need to go shoot them with your plasma rifle that's all you needed for doom but with something like GoldenEye, it was expected that you're going to be following the plot of the movie and the golden eye team did that and then invented some more stuff that would work into the movie or work into the plot and sort of expand on the movie's story and everything. And that kind of made me think, like, how many people actually noticed that back in 1997 or were just so excited to play the game because, you know, you had an N64. And to be fair, there were not a lot of good games on the N64 in 97. I think they had a total of 50 games released for it and the console had been out for a little while. And also they had to compete with the PlayStation, and that had an awful lot of games released for it. Most of them were good. Not all of them, but most of them were good. It just kind of felt like the N64 library was a lot more threadbare at the time. So let's get away from some of my biases, and let's move into just some of the memories I had of playing this. I don't remember GoldenEye for the single-player mode at all. I'm 
pretty sure that I tried it over at a friend's house, or maybe he brought the system over to my house and we played it. But I never cared about the single player mode. I always wanted to get in the multiplayer because I didn't have a choice. Uh, there were I had uh, three friends who owned all owned an N64. All of them owned GoldenEye. I did not own an N64, and I did not own GoldenEye. So you can imagine that I was just just wasted space there. I I was just I was the extra body on a team of of people. I had to be paired with the best player because I was the absolute worst. And I ended up growing to really hate GoldenEye after, you know, a year of playing it. And it just sort of felt like I was, I would help my team out a lot more if I just died right away and then just set the controller down. That way I wouldn't, you know, lose more points. I guess my, my kill to death ratio would be just 0 and 1 instead of, you know, 1 and 50 or something ridiculous like that. Because I was worthless in that game especially with two other people that memorized if I kill him here, then he's going to respawn over here. So we just need to put a bunch of proximity mines there, and then he'll respawn at this point. So they always knew where I was going to be, they always knew where the weapons were, and I was just sort of fumbling around like an idiot. Because I only really played this game, like, maybe for two or three hours a week, sometime like maybe four months out of the year because we didn't get together every weekend mostly because I didn't I didn't have every weekend free but yeah it, it was oh man I I grew to hate GoldenEye and I was so happy when they moved on to something else for the N64 because I just I was so sick of playing GoldenEye back then and I really had just a negative view on that game. I'm like, it's awful. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And then I got a little older, went back and, and played it again. And I was like, it's pretty fun. It's, you know, it's not necessarily a, a first-person shooter that I would go back to. It's it's not as much fun as Doom, but it it's it's a fun game. It's very well-made and everything. The multiplayer is a lot of fun especially if you kind of mess around with the modes and everything. And I think we did that with, um, I can't remember if we did it with Perfect Dark or with GoldenEye, but I, I actually, I think it might've been Perfect Dark now that I, I kind of think back onto it. But I do remember going over to a friend's house and just getting a whole, it was just like us versus a whole bunch of, uh, of enemies and everything and running around and playing with playing, uh, the multiplayer that way. Then it was a lot of fun. But just when I was playing it with those guys, oh my god. I I remember just, I remember them, it was almost like they wanted to figure out why I was so bad at it so they could help me. And I I was, at that point, I was just like, I don't care. I, I really don't care. I am here because you guys are my friends and I will play this stupid game that I did not really like at the time. Now I do like it. It is a... It's more fun than it was back in, in the late 90s and everything like that. I still don't think I would want to play the multiplayer with them again, but it is a lot of fun to sit down and play now. And it, I definitely changed my attitude on the game over time. So just uh, final thoughts on the book. I'm, I'm way over the time that I wanted to do for this. Uh, I think Elise does an excellent job of telling the story of GoldenEye, Rare, and the development team behind the game. 
I, I just found it to be very interesting, and it brought up some pretty fond memories. Uh, yeah, it, while I was reading this, I, I thought back to several nights driving over to my friend Drew's house, and I, I worked at Little Caesars, so I would bring a bunch of pizzas over with me after I got off work, and we would just spend the night playing video games and eating pizza, especially since Drew's parents were never home for some godforsaken reason. So we would just hang out there, eat a bunch of pizza, play a bunch of video games, and just have a lot of fun. That's what reading this book kind of brought back and and made me think back to. And that's why I I really do think this is one of the best books that Boss Fight Books has put out, and at least an excellent job while writing it. Okay, so let's uh, move on to the last topic here. Um, I, I've been spending a lot of time recently playing uh, Secret of Evermore, sort of on and off, and, and just going back to, to playing around with that one, around with that game. Uh, I was trying to find an RPG to really get back into, because I've, I've been playing a lot of different uh, different games that I don't necessarily need to go all the way through in order to beat. And with RPGs, I really want to go through all of them. I, and I want to actually get as far as I can and beat as much of the game as possible. And I sort of jumped around through through a bunch of them. Uh, just trying to get into them and, you know, that sort of thing. And it's one of those, one of those things where you, you play some games and you try to really just get focused in on it but for whatever reason, the game's not grabbing you at any particular time. And I find that that's happening to me a lot more as I get older. So I, I was just sort of messing around with a bunch of different games on, in my library. And I I don't know why, but I was like, well, let's give Secret of Evermore another chance. And I, I shouldn't say that like it's a bad thing. It just uh, It's one of those games that I played a lot on ROM. And then when I tried to play it on console, I just was getting my ass handed to me <laughs> over and over again. And there were a few puzzles in that game that I couldn't figure out when I was younger and didn't really spend the time trying to figure out. And then as I play it now, I'm like, oh, okay, that's how they expected me to get past this part. I had to actually switch characters and do different things, which was kind of interesting at the time. I, I didn't know that, but there are certain spots where you have to shift from your from your boy character because you play like a just a kid a kid and his dog are the two characters in this and you have to switch from the kid to the dog in order to jump over certain things didn't know that at the time but i think it's really cool like it's a really awesome idea if you've never played secret of evermore it plays an awful lot like secret of mana and if you've never played secret of mana it's an action rpg where you have a small group of characters that you can rotate between. You get a bunch of different weapons, you can level up your weapons, you can get a bunch of different uh, magic. You can get magic and that can level up over time too. The way your weapons and magic level up is by using them. You have a very limited number of items, so sometimes you definitely need to lean on, on your magic. Where I think Secret of Evermore is better is in its magic system. Instead of having like a set uh, number of magic points to use, you use what's called alchemy. And alchemy is you combining like a couple of different items and using that to cast a spell. 
And you can have 99 of each item. So you can run around with like 99 pieces of water, 99 roots, 99 this, blah, 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 blah. And it just allows you to use more spells. And so you you can run out of magic, but it's very hard to do so. Or at least it's been hard for me to, to run out of magic. And it's kind of fun to play around with the different stuff like that. Because you can kind of be a little bit more magic focused or you can use your weapons a lot more. And the weapons are kind of standard. You have an axe, you have a sword, and you have a spear. And as you move through the game, you get better we- like better versions of those weapons. And you kind of move through it in like a historical timeline, but also like in a, well, yeah, pretty much in a historical timeline. Because the whole game centers around this group of people who got sucked into a machine and they got dropped off in different spots where it was like, okay, this is going to be a world or a region that's created for you based on the things that you like the most. So you have a a little girl who's really into dinosaurs, so she has like a prehistoric region. Then you have a guy who's really big into archaeology and like the Roman Empire and everything, so his world kind of resembles that. And then you go into like a couple of other ones, which I can't remember off the top of my head because I haven't gotten that far into the game yet. But yeah, I'm about halfway through, and it's just a really fun game to go into. And I'll, I'll talk more about it uh, maybe at the end of this month or, or maybe in November when I, I do another episode. But so far it's been a it's been a lot of fun just getting into that. And yeah, I'll, I'll talk more about it later. So I, I just kind of want to wrap things up here and uh, let you guys get going. So let, let's quickly wrap all this stuff up. Uh, this is a, a lot of fun to kind of go over these different things, but we're, we're getting into probably my favorite uh, time of year, and that's October. And this is when I sort of turn the channel over to a, a bunch of horror-themed stuff. So we're going to be talking about a bunch of different things on the channel, and uh, we're going over... I've got four horror games I'm going to be going over. Um, World of Horror should be the video that went out today. And then there are two books that kind of have horror themes to them that they're going to be coming out this month. And then, like, a top five horror game so far, and then I need to think of another top five or a top ten to come out this month. And I'm also working on a, a couple of movie reviews for, for October. Uh, one of them is going to be the Parasite Eve movie, which is a prequel to, uh, to the first game. And I don't know what the second one is going to be just yet, but I'm going to try to get two movie reviews out this month. We'll, we'll see if I accomplish that or not. But yeah, that's kind of what I got going on for October. Um, I Yeah, I've gone way over my time. Wow. Okay, so that that's just going to wrap everything up. I, I really hope you guys have enjoyed these podcasts and in, enjoyed this episode. Uh, I don't know if there are comments on it. I believe our Anchor has comments, so you can go ahead and leave a comment or anything else you want. I just really hope you guys are enjoying these, and I will talk to you all later this month. Goodbye.